Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you now and we trust as a people and I trust as a preacher that we are not praying just out of mere habit because that's what we are used to seeing in the bulletin, a prayer of illumination. And so we sort of take a breath and gather ourselves. No, we, we come because we don't want to waste our time. We need to hear from you. We are easily distracted. We're tired. We're thinking of other things. And you want to say something to us in your word. These verses at the end of a short letter would be easily overlooked, tempted to be forgotten. But you want to say something to us. And so would you give us the ability for these next 35 minutes to listen, to have ears, not only to have the words make sense in our brains, but to sink into our hearts, that you would rebuke us, you would correct us, you would teach us, you would train us. For your sake, for ours, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We come to the end of Titus, Titus chapter three. I know I've heard many good things all good things, in fact, about the preaching while I was away and know that the other pastors handled the text well as they moved through Proverbs in the morning and through this book in the evening. And now we come to the last few verses of Paul's letter to Titus. We will look at verse 9 through verse 15. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. I want to introduce to you a term that may be unfamiliar. It's an ism. The term is primitivism. Now, there is a thing called primitivism. You can go Google it later and find that there is such an ism, often with reference to art, literature, music. And as you might guess from the name, it exhorts us to go back to simpler times and to look at the beginnings or the origins of things and find what is simpler and maybe purer. Well, there can also be a kind of primitivism when it comes to the Christian faith. It's the idea that says, if only we could go back to the primitive church, go back to the church in its earliest days, there was a pure 
pristine model for us. And everything since then has fallen from that original grace. And if you know church history, you know that almost every century there are these movements, sometimes called restorationists of various kinds, who are arguing we have lost what we had in the early church. And we need to peel back all the layers of accretion and tradition and get back to the way they did things in the New Testament church. Our goal is to recapture the simplicity and the purity of that primitive era. Not too long ago, I was reading a new book by a popular Christian author. And he began by inviting us to read the New Testament as if for the first time. And think of the church that's described there and put out of our minds everything we may think of as church. One person standing up and speaking to others who may be sitting in chairs or pews in a row and have a pulpit and have a church building and have a choir and have music and have hymnals and set all of that aside. Everything you know about church that may have its committees and its organizations and its denominations and just go back and read the New Testament for the very first time, and would you come to the conclusion that church as we know it today is anything like church as they had it then? It's a call to primitivism. And for many people, it's a alluring, romantic ideal. After all, who wouldn't want to be there with the apostles in the first church? Or maybe for some of us, it's not that, but it's the allure of Calvin's Geneva or some golden age of Scottish Presbyterianism or some supposed golden age of Southern Presbyterianism. It's a common temptation. You find it in popular Christian books. The problem certainly is not in appealing to an earlier day. We have things to learn from those who have gone before, and oftentimes our mistakes were not their mistakes, and things they got right, we get wrong. And the problem is certainly not in going back to Scripture to be our final authority. Of course we want to do that. Rather, the problem with this kind of primitivism is at least fourfold. Number one, it's really not possible to finally fully recover what it was exactly like. We cannot recreate the past either for the first century church or for Scottish Presbyterianism or for Calvin's Geneva. And we cannot divest ourselves of everything that we know in our accumulated history and experiences and knowledge. You cannot just flush out everything you know and let's pretend that none of that happened and the people who think that they're doing that are actually the ones who can be causing the most danger to think that you are not bringing anything of your own experience to the task. A second danger is it does not differentiate in the New Testament between what is prescriptive and what is merely descriptive. It's one of the hallmarks of good hermeneutics. That is how you interpret the Bible. There are many things that are descriptive of the way things were that may or may not be prescriptive of the way things ought to be. A third danger is this primitivism does not allow for development. Development of doctrine in ways that the Holy Spirit would guide the church in subsequent generations. And not all development is of a kind of barnacle attaching to the hull of the ship that we must peel off, but some of it is spirit-given. 
And then finally, and perhaps most damagingly, this allure of primitivism often suffers from a romantic view of the past. And I can be as prone to this as anyone I just finished my degree in history. I love history, and I can find myself reading this and sometimes thinking, oh boy, wouldn't that have been great to be a, a, a pastor in some bygone era with some beautiful stone church in some little hamlet somewhere in the, in the, the hills with the, the heather on the hills in Scotland or something, and then you go and you learn about it and you read. You know what they had there back in the 18th century? Sinners. Problems, very cold buildings. We're all prone to this sort of romanticization of whatever the past, whatever golden era it might seem to us. And often we're blind to the ways it wasn't a very golden era for others. Oh, it was a better, purer time in the 50s. Well, not if you were African-American in this country. Or ask yourself this question, just quite apart from any religious considerations. Would you trade your position now if you could go back, let's, let's, pick the, um, let's pick the Reformation, let's pick the 16th century, and you can be the richest person in a European country in the 16th century. Would you trade what you have now to go back there? Mm, probably not if you're smart. Your toilet doesn't flush. <laughs> and you're probably going to die of something quite earlier than most of us will. And chances are that one or more of your children will die, and maybe your wife will die in childbirth, and you won't be able to watch any football. There are lots of drawbacks, but we tend to have this romantic view of the past. Now, all of that is leading us into today's text because we tend to think that, oh, if we only had the New Testament church. Well, you know what? Sometimes we do, and that's part of the problem. Even a cursory reading of the New Testament should remind us that in this apostolic age, and yes, there was a unique power in that age, but it was not a golden age of the church. And those of us who know our Bibles know that there were strengths and weaknesses like any church age. What do we find when you read the letters in Revelation to the seven churches? Well, you have this, Ephesus, but I have this against you. And you're doing that pretty well with uh, the doctrine, but you're not really loving, or you're really good at helping people, but you're tolerating false teachers. The same sort of letters I imagine Jesus would write us today. And so we see here at the end of this short letter to Titus, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, as I was looking at it, as it was printed in the bulletin, I just want you to notice that there is a break between that and the speaker. So it's not the good, the bad, and the ugly Kevin DeYoung. But the good, the bad, and the ugly brought to you by Kevin DeYoung from the Bible. We see each of these in these final verses. And we are going to take them not in the familiar order of that triplet, but rather in the order they come to us in the text. So the bad, the ugly, and the good. First then, verse 9 the bad. Paul is going to instruct Titus, and really he's instructing the entire 
church here because notice in verse 15, this letter which has been directed to Titus now assumes a plural audience. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with y'all. So he assumes that this letter which he is writing to Titus is going to be in turn read out loud as a public document to the entire congregation. So Paul's not writing a private letter just to the pastor. He assumes that the instructions are given to all. In verse 9, he is going to tell the Christians here that they need to put off some things. You understand this from the rest of the New Testament, that godliness is not only putting on, but it is putting off. It's about welcoming what we should welcome and avoiding what we should avoid. You cannot be a mature Christian by only being positive. You must also be negative. I don't mean a critical person. But you must look at, as a Christian, I do this and I do not do that. If you are only thinking, well, to be a Christian is to put on, to welcome, to include, to now affirm these things or people and never to do the opposite, then you do not understand the New Testament call to action. Put on, put off. Welcome this, avoid that. So here we have four bad things to avoid in verse 9. Number one, avoid foolish controversies. The sort of controversies that you might often find your children or grandchildren engaging in. My sister and I, as we were growing up, would often have contests to see who could eat the most fried mozzarella cheese sticks. And uh, even though my Little sister is just as skinny as can be, and one of those people that you would, you would perhaps uh, love to hate because she can't put on weight, one of those people, she could really down a lot of those cheese sticks. We would have arguments about it. My kids sometimes have arguments about who's most likely to be in the Olympics. Well, sorry kids, probably none of you, but keep trying not crushing their dreams. We have all sorts of arguments that get stirred up. We see them easily with children, but we do them even with ourselves. 1 Timothy 4, 7, avoid irreverent silly myths, Paul says. He calls them in Titus 1, 14, Jewish myths. In 1 Timothy 6, 20, irreverent babble about contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. And we don't know exactly what Paul has in mind, but it's something about stories, about tales, about fables of Jewish origins, as we'll see. And Paul calls them foolish controversies. Why are you arguing about this? Even if we could decide from heaven on high who is right, it will not matter one whit for your life. Enough already. The second thing to avoid, genealogies. Now, this is not, well, shame on you. You did your DNA ancestry or 23andMe or you've done family tree. No, this was a particular sin in this context of tracing one's lineage to prove some spiritual point. He says earlier in 1 Timothy chapter 1 that these genealogies promote, quote, speculation rather than stewardship. So you get to the end of it and you figure out who your ancestors were and what famous rabbi you came from. 
that it doesn't really help you. It's just speculating, or they may have even been speculating about angelic beings that somehow they descended from. It doesn't help you with stewardship, how then you're going to be a more faithful Christian and to love your neighbor as yourself. It's all speculation. Genealogies. Third, avoid dissensions, that is, falling out with people, falling apart because of these controversies. And fourth, quarrels. So fighting about nothing. First Timothy 6.4, he calls them unhealthy craving for controversy and quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil, suspicions. 2 Timothy 2.14, do not quarrel about words. 2 Timothy 2.23, he calls them foolish, ignorant controversies that breed quarrels. Avoid these things. This is a common theme throughout the pastoral epistles. Now, to be clear, Paul is not saying that all controversy is bad. Sometimes people take this and then they shame you for caring about theology or for wanting to be precise with your doctrine and you're just arguing about words. Well, clearly that's not what Paul means about all doctrinal matters. Throughout the pastoral epistles, is he not correcting their theology? Does he not advocate to guard the good deposit? He is constantly emphasizing, even in this letter, the importance of sound teaching. Look at chapter 1, verse 9. The elder must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. So Paul has a category for sound teaching and wrong teaching. The elders, the leaders of the church must be able to give this instruction. Chapter 2, verse 15, declare these things, he tells Titus, exhort, rebuke with all authority. So clearly, Paul is not saying, shame on you for caring about doctrine and theology. Doctrine is not the problem itself. Disagreement even is not the problem. Again, we are piecing together as best we can what the exact problem was, and we don't know exactly, but there are some key words, endless genealogies, speculation, vain discussion, irreverent, silly Quarrels about words, babbling, does no good, leads people into ungodliness, unprofitable, worthless. I think we can boil it down to a couple of characteristics. How do you know what is an important controversy and a foolish controversy? Well, here's one characteristic. A foolish controversy has no real answer to it. You can't finally come to an answer, the sort of stereotypical question whether this was actually debated or not in the Middle Ages, how many angels could dance on the head of a pin or could God make a rock so heavy that he can't lift it? If a tree falls in the woods and no one's around, does it make a sound? Hmm. Yeah, probably. Well, sorts of idle, speculative questions that just allow people to pontificate and exercise their intellectual muscles. And at the end of the day, you really can't prove one way or another. That's a controversy. It's not worth having. There's no answer at the bottom of it. You know, when we get to Christmas, we will probably have an Advent wreath. In every church that I've been a part of, people ask, uh, well, what, what, what? 
Candles are the Advent wreath. I have no idea. No one has any idea. Well, that's the joy candle, and that's the peace candle, and that's the love candle, and that's the um, potluck candle, and then in the middle is the Christ candle. And everywhere I've gone, they have different names, sometimes different colors. Oh, and my approach is always, if it means that a family gets up, and there's something on fire, and it's not me, and they read a verse of Scripture, that's fine. But it would be pointless for God's people to get into a long, drawn-out fight about what those candles are called. Or for Christians to break fellowship. No, no, no. It's not debts. It's trespasses. It leads to forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. I've always thought there should be some global, international council to decide once and for all. My extended family growing up at Thanksgiving, they were Methodists, some of them, and we would always get to that part and we'd pray and it would be all, everyone sort of peeking, you, me, where are we going with this? Depresses, and we just say something. Well, I'm sure there's a history behind the different Bibles and English translations, but at the end, you can't finally say, well, to say one is right or wrong. So no real answer. And here's the other mark of a foolish controversy, when there's no real point to it. Other than that, you are puffed up. See, here's what we have going on in the pastoral epistles with their genealogies and their myths and, and their tracing of who they belong to. When they get to the end of it, if they could get an answer, which they can't, the only thing they would have is a reason to puff out their chest. Well, yes, well, you see, that's where I come from good for you. That's fine. Be interested in it. Figure it out. We're not going to argue about it. It doesn't actually lead them to be holier, to worship better, to know something about God. The result is you feel better about yourself compared to others. We must be careful about that. It's important as doctrinal controversies are. It is possible to have the sort of doctrinal controversies which, which get into such rarefied air, there is finally no exact answer except it gives smart people an opportunity to show how smart they are and perhaps they can get done and say, well, I think I proved I'm a little smarter than you. What these arguments have in common is an argument that is less about the truth or about godliness than it is about you being proved right and thought impressive. That's why they're referred to as vain discussions, irreverent babble. So ask yourself, am I asking questions to impress or because I'm really looking for an answer? I can tell you that as a teacher, it's very obvious. The student raises his hand, he has a question, and it's the sort of question that he wants to be heard, how much he knows, how impressive his learning is versus I am genuinely interested in an answer to this question. And I've had people over the years in pastoral ministry ask me difficult questions. Sometimes there's, 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 it's not hard to ask questions that I may not know the answer to, but you can pretty quickly tell this person really wants to know something or they really want to prove something. Or ask you, yourself this, am I prone to conspiracy theories and other theories that are non-falsifiable? What does that mean? It means that 
they're, they're so outlandish and involve so much speculation that you, you can't finally prove it one way or another. Those are the sort of pointless controversies. I suppose that the Kennedy assassination could have involved extraterrestrials, we'll never know. But that may be beside the point. May not be a real profitable discussion. Or are you interested in proving your heritage, either your physical genealogical heritage or some theological heritage? Not out of just an interest in where you might be from, nothing wrong with that, or being proud of your background or ethnicity, but rather in a one-upmanship or a way to be thought more impressive or perhaps a way to be thought more oppressed than others, pointless speculation, the bad. And then second, here's the ugly. The ugly is this divisive person in verses 10 and 11. This person is so dangerous, not simply because they're wrong. We all get things that are wrong. We all make mistakes. We all say, oh boy, I could have done that better. But because they are warped, verse 11. So it's not a straight board. It's warped. One TV show that we, during the summer, like to try to watch as a family is American Ninja Warrior. And they have at the, it's an obstacle course. And at the end of each course, they have a warped wall. It's one of these things that goes like that. I'm, as your pastor, not going to try that for fear of dying uh, we were at the Kinetic Heights when we first came here and we saw a guy about my age who had one of those warped walls and he said to the people around them, I'm going to try it, watch, I'm going to break my ankle. He did break his ankle <laughs> and it looked really bad and I thought, that's not the way I want to go out. But you, you, it, it's, it's warped, meaning it's, it's curved in on itself. This divisive person is not like normal people that you can walk in a straight line and you can talk to one another and you can say, brother, sister, I think maybe you've gotten out of step here. No, it's, it's, it's warped. It's always curving back in on itself. It always leads to the same conclusion. Some people hold up the standard of truth or reason according to their own measure. Not a measure that others can abide by, but a measure that they insist everyone else acquiesce to. Some people, to put it plainly, are not teachable. They have no interest in learning or listening. Some do not even have an interest in the laws of logic or consulting others who have studied the issue more deeply. And these verses say some pretty blunt things about divisive people, like don't waste your time. Romans 16, 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Or here we see, as for a person, verse 10, who stirs up division, warn him once and then twice. This isn't, you know, you said something and it hurt my feelings. I don't like you. I shun you. No, we seek after lost sheep, we engage, okay, warn you once, this is stirring up controversy, okay, friend, you, you, you did this again, and then you have nothing to do with him. 
The Bible treats division very seriously. Now, again, this is not an honest disagreement between two thoughtful Christians. That's not the sort of division the Bible condemns. We know that even Paul and Barnabas had to split ways for a time. They simply did not see the matter regarding John Mark in the same way. It may be unfortunate, but not necessarily sinful. No, the division God condemns is the kind that comes from divisive people who stir up controversy, create quarrels wherever they go. We read in Second Peter and in Jude, they are ugly blemishes on the church, and they should be treated with medicine twice. And if you spit out the medicine two times, then you say, okay, you're sick. Don't get the rest of us sick. No, we're, we're not going to play this game again. That's how divisive people are. They are the proverbial, was it... Lucy, who's holding the ball for Charlie Brown? Whichever one. Okay, this time, Charlie Brown, for real. Are you sure? Yeah, for real. I'm going to hold that there. And we get really into it, and we get it wound up, and we're going to go, and we're going to kick that. And sure enough, the football gets pulled away every single time. I thought we were going to really get to the bottom of this. Nope. It's not what I'm interested in. What are the marks of a divisive person? I'm not talking about someone who disagrees and says, oh, I don't know about that decision or we're going to have to see differently and agree to disagree on that point of view. No, a divisive person. Number one, they don't admit to mistakes. Perhaps cosmically, you know, I'm not a perfect person. No, they don't admit to specific mistakes. Number two, they don't change their minds ever. You've never heard them say, you know what? You're right. I was wrong. You know what? That would have been better. I changed my mind. Number three, they have a long trail of churches they couldn't stand or relationships they couldn't stomach. They may hop around from group to group, from friendship circle to friendship circle, or sometimes from church to church. You see, the common denominator in wherever they go is that they were there and nothing was sufficient for them. Number four, they are not interested in a mutual pursuit of the truth. Brother, sister, let's dig into this together. How about you read that? I'll read that. We'll look into the Bible. Let's pray about this. Let's try to figure out the truth here. Number five, they tend to be valiant in wartime and no good in peacetime. I had a friend say that to me about a, a brother one time. He is very good in wartime and he does not know how to live in peacetime. People who aren't happy unless they're cracking heads, unless they're shooting somebody down, unless they're thrusting a sword. Or number six, they talk about rather than talking to. Or when they talk to, they make sure as many people as possible are listening. A divisive person. Paul says in the strongest terms, warn him once, warn him twice, have nothing to do with them. You mess around with divisive people, you get division in the church. And the unity of the church is so to be prized, such a precious gift from God. The shepherds of the church must not tolerate any who will sow seeds of division. The bad, the ugly, and finally, the good. The good are the good deeds that we are enjoined to do in these last few verses. Now, you would have seen already the expression good works. 
It occurs 14 times in the pastoral epistles, and already we've seen it here in Titus, chapter 2, verse 14, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Chapter 3, verse 8, I insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. And here at the very end, verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. Works. So over and over again, we see we are not saved by good works. It's not a cosmic balance sheet. Should I let you into heaven? I need to add up your good works. I need to add up your bad works. Do you have more good works? That's not how it works. That is an anti-gospel. But it is also not the gospel to say, well, because we are saved by grace alone, then good works are irrelevant. Oh, we are saved by faith alone, but the famous saying is, the faith that saves is never alone. It bears fruit from that gospel root. We are purified for good works. We adorn the gospel with good works. We are, in fact, required as Christians to do good works. What are the works here? Well, in one sense, they are general deeds of love and righteousness. You see back in verse 8, these things are excellent and profitable. So good deeds are those things which are excellent and profitable. But here at the end of the letter, we have two practical examples of good deeds. First, we might call friendship and support. Friendship and support. Verse 12, when I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis. Nicopolis was on the west coast of Greece, about 200 miles northwest of Athens. And as commentators can tell you, all in all, it's probably not a bad place to spend the winter. So Paul was not a suffering maximalist. He said, where am I going to winter? Let's do the coast of Greece. So at least he had that going for him in this particular winter with all the rest that he suffered. He says, Titus, I'm going to send Artemis and Tychicus. In other words, I'm going, to, I'm going to send some help to you so you can leave Crete for a time, and I really want you to come visit me. Sometimes the most meaningful thing we can do as Christian friends is simply show up. Be there. People will not remember the words that you had or the Bible verses that you read or the prayers that you prayed, all of that matters. They will remember you were there or even you gave a call or even a text or an email to say I'm praying that you showed up. Well, Paul wants not merely a letter. He wants to see his friend in the flesh. It would mean so much to me, Titus, if you could come, what would encourage me? Here's the great apostle Paul, shipwrecked, stoned, vipers shaking off his hand. He can handle anything. Well, he says, you know what I really need this winter? I need a friend. And so I'm going to send these two brothers. And Titus, if you could come and spend the winter with me, that would be so encouraging. Don't think that any of us are above needing relationships, needing friendships, needing gospel encouragement, friendship and support. Would you come and be with me? That's a good deed. And then the second category, very specifically, hospitality and generosity. He says in verse 13, do your best to speed Zenus the lawyer, okay? A good lawyer. I want a lawyer to come with me. And Apollos, 
the famed teacher, send them as well and see that they lack nothing. Okay, I want you to provide for them. I want you to support them. And then in verse 14, let all our people learn to devote themselves to good works, very specifically, help cases of urgent need. These pressing needs almost certainly refer to urgent needs in the church community as he says, our people. He's thinking as 1 John 3 would tell us, when you see a brother in need, someone now in your own community and you have the means to help them and yet you withhold it, then you hate your brother. Now, would you do these good deeds and look around you? Where are people in urgent need? And that may look different from community to community. Yes, we, ha we have people here who may be unemployed, may be underemployed, may have insurance fall through the cracks, may ha have diaconal needs, and we have deacons who are very keen to show mercy to those in our congregation, and you should not be afraid in genuine need to ask for it. At the same time, we may look around and think, well, we look pretty well-dressed tonight, and most people come from a home or apartment or something and seem to be at least making it fairly decently. But we are kidding ourselves if we think that there are not pressing needs in our congregation. And in fact, if we don't ever let people know of our urgent needs, not only are we not living a realistic Christian life, but we are robbing from others the joy that they would have in serving in the name of Christ to help us. We can put on such a front. Says, well, yes, I'm sure I have sort of very respectable sins, but I know how to come to church and I know how to get dressed up and I know how to behave in a, in a small group and I know how to ask a nice question in my Sunday school group. How many people really know what's going on in your life? Because there are more urgent needs than I'm sure we are aware of. More than your pastors know, and the pastors can't care for all of them. The elders can't care for all of them. We must one another know of them and come to each other. If you've been through the discovery class with me, you know that at the end of the class, I mentioned uh, a book by Ed Welch on helping people. And the book has two profound reminders for everyone in the church. This is true of every single one of you in this room, myself included. We are all needed, and we are all needy. Both of those are true. You're needed. There is someone who can be blessed by you, by your gift, by your presence, by your meal, by your note, someone who can be blessed by you. You are needed, and you and I are needy. For most of us, we probably do a bit better actually at being needed. Tell me what I can do to help. And forget that we are also needy. We have hurts, we have pain, we have difficulties. We need help with kids or with aging parents or with our health or with our bills or simply with life and loneliness. Let us be a congregation that is not afraid to say, yes, I have a need. And someone else is eager to say, let me run to that need. Devote yourselves to good works. Do you see here how wonderfully practical this is? The, the Bible is not asking you to go out and lead a revolution or start a movement or say, here's our 10-point plan to change the world. 
No, are you willing to be burdened for the sake of others? To sacrifice something of your wealth or your ease? To make sure others are cared for, especially as it would encourage and befit the spread of the gospel? Where might you have an opportunity this week to do good? And Paul concludes this personal letter with a bit of corporate bonding. He says, all of us send our greetings to all of you. So here's the bottom line. And it's very simple and it's very difficult. Avoid the bad, warn the ugly, embrace the good. In some measure, church ministry is as simple and as challenging as that. Avoid the bad, warn the ugly, and embrace the good. Because the goal, of course, is a community that mirrors the love of the Father, the grace of the Son, and the unity and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. That's what a church is supposed to be. A, the body of Christ reflecting the character of God. So what can you do right in front of you? What opportunity is God giving you this week? Is there one of these things that you must avoid Foolish controversy, dissension, quarreling? Is there one person you must not be? Or is there a brother or sister that you can help with a call, with a card, with showing up, not simply to say, tell me what I can do to help, but here I am and I'm going to help you. That we might be at Christ's covenant, a Christian community that reflects the character of God in faith and hope and love. Let's pray. Our gracious, loving, heavenly Father, we are all from time to time a bit of these, the good, bad, and the ugly. But by your spirit, we want to avoid the bad and we want you to work out of us that which is ugly and embrace that which is good. How beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So give us pretty feet. Give us good hearts. Give us solid heads. That we may love your truth. That we may love your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.